0: Alright, thanks AJ. Good morning to you. If you're new, welcome. Citadel Square. My name is Steve, one of the pastors here. Uh, if you've got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it. Uh, turn to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John is where we're going to be. The fourth gospel, John. And turn to about the middle of the book. We're going to be taking a, look, taking a look at John chapter 12 here during our time together. And as you're turning, let me talk to you uh, just briefly. This, in a sense, closes our our meditation, our Christmas meditation over these past three weeks on incarnation, on looking at the coming of Christ through God's eyes. Uh, we started in John chapter 3, and we said that John chapter 3 showed us the heart of God for the world, that he was a generous and good and giving God uh, to send his one and only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have what? Eternal life. John 3.16, Right. And then we looked last week at Philippians chapter 2. Now, Philippians chapter 2, we just took three little bitty verses there in the middle of Paul's letter to the Philippians. And we looked at the humility of Jesus Christ. What did it take for the Son of God who was preexistent in uh, triune glory to descend and to come down into his creation. And we looked at those progressive steps that looked all the way ultimately to death, death even on a cross, we said from Philippians chapter two. Well, today we are going to look at John chapter 12, right? The end paragraph of John chapter 12. If you've turned there, go ahead and uh, take a look at it. Uh, I had different ideas about what to call this message, um, I was gonna call it the danger of Christmas, which I thought, that's catchy, that's good, people like that, that's, that'll get lots of clicks, lots of views, that's, re- that's the reason I name the sermons, really, is purely for social media, that's the only reason I do it. Uh, but I landed on, really, the gravity of Christmas. Uh, when it comes to the Christmas season, look, you know this in, in your family, or you know, in, as you grow up, anybody started on Christmas cookies yet? Amen, hallelujah for Christmas cookies. Look at you all, aren't you? You're too scared to raise your hand in church. We all, we all do this. Sugar cookies, gingerbread, right? Whatever your thing is. Uh, who's, everybody's lights up already? Put all your Christmas lights up? Yes. Yeah, see we're even more excited about that. More people raise their hand about lights. Uh, you may consider family traditions. Uh, things for you. You may consider decorations uh, in your home, that your home is ready and decorated and that the Christmas season comes with lights and flowers and uh, beauty and stars and angels. And we've said this in this series that even the Christmas story does that, doesn't it? It comes with shepherds and angels and uh, wise men from the east and... um, just the miracle, the incarnation, the virgin birth, all sorts of things that for us... Uh, stoke the fires of our imagination and that now as you begin to prepare or put your final preparations in place for Christmas uh, Eve this week, all of our hearts are eager and joyful and everybody's singing an O Holy Night in here, right? Because we all know that song and, and it reminds us of those seasons that we've been through, those, that nostalgia that accompanies this Christmas season. But one of the greatest dangers of the Christmas season one of the um, kind of occupational hazards of the holidays is missing the point of the season. Would you agree? That, that we go through Christmas holidays and Christmas seasons and we're trying to grasp onto these memory-making moments. And the greatest fear for us so many times is to miss the reason for the season is to miss and somehow lose opportunities that are in our hands with our family or with our friends or with our neighbors is to miss that opportunity to, while, while our homes may be lit up with Christmas light that we miss the point of the gravity of Christmas. And what I wanted to do in our, our kind of final meditation on the incarnation is look at John chapter 12. And in John chapter 12, Jesus himself says, I have come into the world for this reason. And John chapter 12, it it sums up really what Jesus has been saying. It's kind of a tough text to talk about because you're always going to be turning back to things that Jesus has said before. He says things in John 3 that show up in John 12. John 5 that show up in John 12. John 9 shows up in John 12. John 10 shows up in John 12. John 12 shows up in John 12. It's, it's annoying in that way to preach. So if you've got to preach it later, be prepared to do a lot of flipping. Uh, if you have to teach this to somebody else. But this text really sums up all of Jesus' teaching in the book of John up to this point. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, have seams in them. They're pivot points in the book, and they're typical uh, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They typically show up around when the Pharisees say, Jesus, we understand these signs, but you must be doing these signs by the power of Satan. And at that point in the, in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the book breaks. And from that point on, Jesus instructs the disciples and preaches in parables. Because he said he gets to a point where his public ministry now is attributed to Satan. He says, no more, we're going to turn the lights off. And that moment in the book of John happens in John chapter 12. But it results from a... Um, the unbelief of the people, which we're going to see I'm going to give you a little bit of a running start here. Uh, if you look at John 12, we're going to be in 44 to 50. But if you just look up a couple of verses there to John 12:36. John 12:36 says this: "When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Uh, what has just happened is that um, Jesus, the Greeks, some Greeks, individuals, non-Jews come to look for Jesus. Jesus says, I've got to be crucified, and then Jesus retreats. And what he does next in John 13 through to the end of the book is train the disciples in the upper room discourse, then he goes to the cross. So Jesus, in a sense, is going to sum up everything he said up to this point. Now look at 37. Though he'd done so many signs before them... They still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, he's blinded their eyes and has hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And with that verse preparing our mind for what we're about to hear Jesus to say, the people who have believed in Jesus recognize that it costs them something to believe in Jesus. Jesus. That to believe in Jesus Christ and what he has done, who he is and the words that he preaches comes with a profound sense of sobriety and gravity. That there is a danger of refusing the word of Jesus Christ. Amen? So what Jesus is about to do for us is sum up his teaching. And he's going he's to work like this. He's going to talk objectively, and then he's going to move subjectively. You know what I mean, subjectively? He, he, he talks to us about the things we hear and the things that we see and the things that we feel and the things that we believe. And then he's going to move back again in this text objectively, just like the incarnation goes from God to earth, back up to heaven, right? Jesus is going to do that. and He's going to compact all of his preaching in excuse me six little bitty verses. See, when we celebrate Christmas, and we come to this season and this time, we need to recognize that when Christ comes, when God comes in the flesh, that it demands something of you and me. We cannot be ambivalent to the person of Jesus Christ. He compels a response, and that's the danger of missing the point of Christmas. It's the danger of going through and doing lots of celebrating but missing the point. And that's what John 12 is all about. All right? That's what we're going to do here uh, for these few minutes of our time here together. Let's pray and ask God for his grace. Father, as we have sung songs about who you are, we pray that as we look into your word, we acknowledge with the psalmist that says, the unfolding of your words gives light That in your light, we see light. So we pray for illumination here today. For somebody who's walked in here this morning and may not have any idea who Jesus is or what the reason for this season is or the reason that we sing and speak these truths that for many in this room have become so dear to them, we pray that you would give light to our eyes. That we would see things about you that perhaps we'd never considered before. That we would see the seriousness of rejecting God in the flesh. But subsequently, Father, that we would receive the truth of your word and that would penetrate to the deepest parts of who we are that your spirit would minister to us here this morning to the discouraged and the despairing, those who feel the weight of this holiday or just the weight of the sinfulness of this world. We pray that there would be comfort and joy and light spoken into those circumstances as a result of us gathering and looking into your word. We pray the beauty of the incarnation would captivate us again, that we would leave this place, this time looking into your word, captivated with wonder, rejoicing in truth, amazed that God would draw near to us in the person of Jesus Christ. So, Father, teach us, instruct us, encourage us, and that you would receive glory as a time, uh, as a result of this time, where we gather together to be edified through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. All right, John 12, y'all there? Good. John 12, here we go. And Jesus cried out. Now, when Jesus yells, would you agree that it's probably important? Jesus yells a couple times in the book of John. He yells in John 7 where he says, anyone who is thirsty, come to me and drink. And Jesus now is going to sum up a lot of, like I said, the teaching that you've seen already in this book. And Jesus cries out with some significant truth, some important things that you ought to know. And here's how Jesus is going to do it. He's going to start objectively with his testimony. He's going to talk about who he is in light of God. So here's Jesus crying out. He says this, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And one of the things we've seen in Jesus' incarnation is his profound humility, haven't we? That his willingness to subject himself to the good and wise plan of his heavenly father to save sinners. That all throughout Jesus' ministry on earth, Jesus is constantly submitting himself to what his father wants him to do. Indeed, what his father wants him to say how his father works through the works and the miracles he does to point to Jesus Christ. So as Jesus begins this last preaching moment, as he hides himself and draws back with the disciples to now talk to them in the upper room discourse, he says, anyone who believes in me believes in him who sent me. See, it's important for us to believe Jesus in terms of what he says. Would you, is that, is that okay? That Jesus has a pretty clear and compelling teaching ministry. But as Jesus goes throughout his life and ministry on earth during those three years, he's trying to make sure that you and I see something about this teaching ministry, about his command to believe in him, to trust his word, to build your life on the foundation of his word. And here in John 12 we see that Jesus wants us to believe in him so also we would believe in God. Now what does that mean? Well it means that Whatever we believe about Jesus had better line up with what God thinks about Jesus, right? So when the incarnation happens, Jesus isn't a rogue member of the Trinity who shows up and starts doing stuff. When Jesus is incarnated into humanity, he is submitting his his will and desires to the plan and purposes of God to save sinners, And as he does that, in complete and full humility, what he's saying is that if you put your trust in me, he says this in John 14, you believe in God, good, believe also in me. Remember that? So now, Jesus is saying, you can believe my words, but my words come from your heavenly father. My words are verified by what God says. So if you believe in me, you believe not in me, but in him who sent me that his ministry is verified by heaven himself. So that's how Jesus begins this objective reality. As I speak and as I preach and as I do these works on earth, I am set up, as it were, as a light post, as an image of the invisible God, so that you might see what God is like. And my testimony, Jesus will say in John 5, is not my own, but is from him who sent me. So, Jesus is subservient in his testimony that you might believe something about God because of what Jesus says. Okay, now he goes on. You may hear, you know, a lot of people may say, Well, I believe in God, but I don't necessarily believe in what Jesus believes about God. You with me? That my theology doesn't exactly match up with Jesus. This is what we said in John chapter three. No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven. That means Jesus' knowledge about heaven and heavenly things and spiritual things is accurate and reliable because he's a first-hand witness. So when Jesus speaks, he's pointing you to God the Father. Okay, so he starts with our belief. Not only that, he goes to the next verse. Look at verse 45. And whoever sees me Sees him who sent me. Well, now it's getting more significant in Jesus' preaching ministry, isn't it? Jesus doesn't just arrive teaching spiritual truths about heaven. Jesus is saying, if you have seen me, you have seen who? You've seen the Father. Well, wait a minute. This is, you remember what, uh, just one chapter. Just keep your finger there. Turn over to chapter 14. Look at 14 verse 8. Even the disciples don't get this. 14.8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long that you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen who? He's seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? You can can insert Jesus' exasperation there if you want to read that in. Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on the accounts of the works themselves. Now go back to John 12. A lot of people can say stuff about what they believe about God. You could even, if you just had John 12, 40, uh, four, You could say that Jesus came from God and told us some truths from God, but it gets more significant, more real than that. When Jesus says, no, 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 if you look at me, you can see God. If you see me, you see what God is like. Now, this shows up all throughout the New Testament. Colossians 2 says that the fullness of deity dwells in him bodily. In Hebrews 1, it says he is the exact representation of his nature. Go back to John chapter 1. Keep your finger there in John 12. Let's go back. I feel like you don't believe me, so I'm going to show you again. Look at John chapter 1. John chapter 1, 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before he, before me because he was before me. From his fullness we've all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who was at the Father's side, he has made him known. Anybody have a Bible that says he explained him? That's good. Okay, throw that Bible away. I'm just kidding. Go back to John 12. He's made him known. He showed us what God is like. When I look at Jesus Christ, I don't have to be confused. I don't have to have some misunderstandings about what God is like in heaven. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus Christ. That's the profound testimony that Jesus gives to us. You don't have to guess. You don't have to wonder, what is God like? I look at Christ. Jesus has the audacity to say, if you want to know what God is like, look at me. Not just I brought some ideas about God down to show you, you can see him in bodily form, here I am. Now, it gets more gravitatious, if that's a word. It gets more serious than that. Not just I have truth from God that you can believe in. Not just uh, the whole fullness of deity dwells in him bodily, like Colossians says. Not just he has made him known, he has explained him. Now look at verse 46. I have come into the world as light. Now we move from objective to subjective We move from, did you see as we looked at our introduction here in these first couple verses, how the quotes from Isaiah spoke to two big realities. What you hear and what you see, okay? Did you see that? Move your head in a direction if you know what a church is. Okay, good. What you hear and what you see. Now Jesus says, I've come into the world as light. Now you might think to yourself, that sounds a lot like John chapter one. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Let me give you a whirlwind tour of darkness in the book of John. I just gave you one of them from John 1, verse 5. You can just jot these down. You can look at them later. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Remember that? Remember that? John 1, that's the power of the light that it resides in the person of Jesus Christ. John 3, uh, we looked at this in John 3, but there's a paragraph after this section we looked at a couple of weeks ago that says this, John three nineteen. this is the judgment, light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes into the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. That we have a subjective affection for dark things. That's the problem with our hearts. We have belief problems, but we also have affection problems. We love things that are not good for us. We worship and serve things that are secret and dark and ugly and evil things. And when Jesus arrives as light, he now illumines that problem in our hearts. John 8, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now you're getting into Jesus' preaching ministry and you're looking at what Jesus says about the darkness. What does it mean uh, in this verse that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness? What does it mean to be in darkness? The darkness can be overcome by light, we have an affection for things that are in the dark, a love, a disordered loves problem in our heart. Jesus arrives in the world as light so that we would no longer walk in darkness, but it gives you some more information in John chapter 12. If you're here in John 12, just look back up in the chapter at John 12:35. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. Okay, so there's a threat of being overtaken by darkness, but that I'm allowed to walk in the light as he is in the light. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. Well, that's instructive, isn't it? You ever try to find something in the dark? Imagine I gave you a Lego set that you've never built before. Legos are big in my house. So that's why I'm using this illustration. And we turned all the lights off and we left it to you to build... This Lego set with zero light in the room, how do you think you would do? With only touch to build that Lego set. You'd have all the pieces, but you couldn't put it together. When Jesus says, I have arrived as light and whoever believes in me will no longer walk in darkness, he means to illumine us spiritually. He means to show us some things about ourselves that we could not see unless we stepped into the light. Now, if it's dark out, it doesn't matter how much education you have. The lights aren't on. It doesn't matter how much money you have. The lights aren't on. Are you getting my point? It doesn't matter how experienced you are. The lights aren't on. At the reality of Christmas, Jesus arriving and declaring himself to be light shows us that for many of us, the problem is we're trying to build our career, our marriage, our uh, plans for our future, but we're building them all in the dark. We're not, we don't have the ability and the spiritual illumination inside ourselves, do we? We need somebody to turn on the lights. You remember the first time you heard about the truth of Jesus Christ? It's like somebody turned on a light in your heart. Christians, raise your hand. You remember that? Remember that you saw things about yourself that you'd never seen before. You saw things about God that you'd never seen before. That you saw Jesus in a different light, no pun intended, than you'd ever seen before. Why do we have lights on our homes? Why do we have Christmas lights that decorate our city? The nostalgia, the beauty, no. To point to the fact that the true light has come into the world. See, the problem we have is that we are in a state of spiritual darkness. No world philosophy, no religious practices, no uh, hard work or intellectual achievement can ever create true spiritual light. Do you believe that? that I need somebody on the outside to turn on the light so I can see what is going on. Thankfully, my iPad just threw up. Hang on. Technology, I should've used paper. Here's the thing. When Jesus invites belief for you and I, this is the beautiful thing about Jesus Christ. When Jesus turns on the light for us, he turns on the light not for condemnation, but for illumination and transformation. That when Jesus says, if you believe in me, I'm going to show you some things about yourself that you've never seen before. But because it's me, I will always accept you and that you can trust me. And that's the beauty of Jesus Christ turning the lights on for us. That in him is true illumination, true understanding, true insight that we've never had before, true transformation and welcome, because he's the light of the world. Now, look at verse 47 with me. So let me, are you tracking with me? Objective reality, I'm gonna tell you some things about God. Number two, I'm going to show you some things about God. I'm going to let you see me, and if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Number three, I am the light that you can't have true spiritual illumination apart from me. If you believe in me, you have a way of navigating this world, sin, relationships, marriage, money, vocation in a way that you've never been able to before. Amen? That when Jesus arrives, he is able to give truth. Do you have any situations like right now that are obscure and difficult and dark to you? I do. Situations that don't make sense to me in my life right now. And what Jesus shows me is that there's an invitation for him to come alongside, to believe in Christ and for Christ to turn the lights on for me to see some things that I wasn't able to see before. Now, Jesus moves in the subjective to a different sense. Look at verse 47. If anyone hears my words, why does he do that? Why does he move from I have come into the world as light to if anyone hears my words? What a strange pivot. And the reason he does it is because you and I receive spiritual illumination not by what we see but what we hear that we see things differently. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. That we understand life differently when we open our ears. I have six children for this illustration. Yes, I really do. Um, And all of my children can see. They have no problem seeing. In fact, they're very perceptive individuals. They see tons of things about one another. They see patterns in situations and in circumstances. Sometimes that I don't even see. That they'll be able to list the behavior of other people because they are so remarkably perceptive and insightful. But my, the problem that my children have is the same problem that I have. That they can't hear good. That I have told them, boundless amounts of information and wisdom to help them live lives of comfort and peace and safety and joy and security and well-being. But they can't hear me. I don't know why they can't hear me. From time to time, as we have raised our kids, one of our kids will try the I can't hear you technique. (laughs) Parents, you ever had this one? Where we're, you know, it's me to the poinsettia. And we're talking, but they're not looking. And I'm telling them, but they're not turning. And they go, oh, Dad, I, I didn't hear you. How well does that work with me? <laughs> not very good. They test it out. That, that phase doesn't last long. But they try it. Because they pretend as if my words don't matter. They don't care what I have to say. They love their own perspective, their own insight, their own desires, all of those things. And I could be giving them manna from heaven, the beauty of heavenly spiritual wisdom gleaned by years of personal failures. Don't laugh too hard. Giving them the way to walk wisely, and it just gone. They can't hear. If anyone hears my words, watch this, and does not keep them. Jesus uses that phrase. If anyone wants to lose his life, to gain his life, he must lose it to keep it. To hold on to it for eternal life. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. We live in a time where... we all live in any time and in every time where we think there are no consequences for unbelief we think i can kind of roll back decisions that i make and somehow preserve my blessing in spite of my disobedience and we all do this and the beauty of the incarnation does jesus have the right to judge the world Will Jesus one day judge the world? He absolutely will. But in his first coming and in his incarnation, he has come to show us the way of salvation. And as he sets up the testimony of his teaching and his perfect life and his miracles and his wisdom and insight that is heavenly alone, he says, I didn't come to judge. I'm here for salvation's sake. This is why our hearts are warmed at Christmas, because we remember he came into the world to save us from our sins. He didn't come with this voice of condemnation. He came as evidence of God's heart and humility and truth to let us know that you and I can enter into relationship with God because of what Jesus has done. Now, the stakes are getting higher. Higher. Believe in God, believe in me. If you see me, you've seen God. If you hear me, you hear God. Now, these two verses are pushed right together so that you would get the sense of the danger and the gravity and the seriousness of rejecting Jesus' words. Verse 48, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words. Now let's read these side by side. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them. Okay? I don't judge him that I've I've come for salvation. If the one who rejects me and does not receive my words. Keep his words, experience salvation, eternal life. Close your ears to his words. Do not receive his words is defined as rejection of Jesus Christ. Jesus is not another spiritual leader or teacher that you can kind of take or leave. I'll take a little bit of Dalai Lama, a little bit of Mother Teresa, I'll take a little bit of Muhammad, I'll take a little bit of, um, I don't know, Buddha, a little bit of maybe sprinkle some Confucius on top and my spiritual well-being will be great. Jesus says, if you don't listen to me, you've rejected me. If you don't open your ears to what I say, you've refused me. That Jesus takes a deafening to his words as personal rejection. This is why Christmas is so serious. Because when Jesus arrives, he means to tell us the truth about who we are. He means to tell us the truth about who God is. And it comes with profound danger If we ignore what he says, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Four times in two verses, Jesus uses the word judge, all in relationship to his word. It's as if, remember what Jesus says in the three times, he says it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. That what I say will go all the way to the end of creation. So that on the last day, Jesus' words are not just here for the disciples, but therefore here for us, because the last day is not here yet. And you and I have an opportunity to repent and turn and receive salvation and eternal life from Jesus Christ, because His Word is true today. His Word was true then, and His Word will be true into the future, all the way to the last day. Now, We've gone from objective reality down to the things that we see and that we hear. This is our our experience as we deal with God's word and as God's word deals with us. And now Jesus is going to move back into the objective realm as if he takes two objective realities and ties them together so that you and I might have trustworthy and faithful knowledge about spiritual things here and today. Isn't that helpful? That every Christmas as it comes around, we are reminded of the truth of Jesus and his, and his incarnation and his care and concern for us, that he displays to us the heart of God. And he's taken us from his incarnation all the way to the last day so that you might receive and believe his word. Verse 49, for I've not spoken on my own authority. But the father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak none of jesus this is a great let me let me give you a great way to evaluate a good preacher how close does their preaching stick to the biblical text the closer a preacher and teacher is to the word of god and what god wants to say the better off you will be the more A preacher or a teacher influences and tries to uh, manipulate the word of God so that everybody applauds and everybody thinks it's great and everybody is encouraged is a great danger to the people that he teaches. Even Jesus, would you agree that Jesus is probably, maybe, I don't know, the best teacher that's ever lived? let's, let's, Let's just agree together. Those of you who are like, I'm not sure... And what Jesus does for us is show us that even his teaching ministry is derivative and that he would not say one word outside of what God wanted him to say. He subjected his entire ministry to the pleasure of his heavenly father. I'll prove it to you. Keep your finger in John 12. Turn back to John 5. Look at John 5, verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. Really? You're the second person of the Trinity, and you can do nothing on your own? As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There's another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John." For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself bore witness about me. His voice you've never seen. He heard your his form you've never seen. See that? Here we are in John 12. Same thing about hearing, same thing about seeing. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. Now, if you go through this passage in John 5, you have John as a witness to Jesus who declares uh, Jesus to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You have the works that the Father does through Jesus Christ that that testify to Jesus and who he is. You also have the scriptures themselves speak and point to Jesus Christ for who he is. So as Jesus arrives, the Father, the works, the scriptures all say he's the light of the world. Now come back to John 12. There's this profound humility and restraint in Jesus Christ who submits himself to display exactly what you and I need to know about God. I haven't spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. Now, watch this. Look at verse 50. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. And I know, here's Jesus with his personal testimony I know the Father. I was with him in eternal pre-existent triune glory from eternity past. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. How do you consider the commandments of God? Burdensome, exhausting, maybe they expose you. Maybe you feel weak when you consider the commandments of God. Maybe you feel like they're too much for you to handle. Maybe you go, it can't be that God actually wants me to be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. That feels exhausting. Maybe you go, God's a killjoy. He hates it when I have fun. So we all gotta do right things and be sad. How do you consider the commandments of God? Here's Jesus at the end of his preaching ministry, and he says, I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, if Jesus knows that what God says is for our good and to ultimately give us eternal life. Here's another great test of a good Bible teacher. Do you believe in God's word that it is able to give life? An eternal quality of life that you cannot find in any other place on the planet. That no amount of searching intellectually or philosophically can give you the light and life of men that is in Jesus Christ. I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. you see the beauty in this passage? The invitation of Jesus Christ in his preaching and teaching ministry to give and serve and love us and to tell us the truth about our situation. What are we saying when we believe in Jesus? What is happening for us when we make the decision... If you talk to my dad about his salvation story, he comes to a point in his story of seeing Christ at work in the life of other people. And it brought him to the point of saying, and I quote, Jesus, if you are who you say you are, then I believe. So when Jesus enters into the world and he declares that he is life, He declares that he is light. He declares that his word is completely and fully trustworthy. He declares that when he speaks, he can give true spiritual illumination into every single corner of your life. And that when he speaks, he speaks only as God wants him to speak. There's no careless word. There's no missed opportunity. He speaks completely accurately because he knows that the commandment from God is eternal life. What is Jesus about to go do? You know, one of the dangers in our life and time is believing that God's word doesn't produce eternal life. You remember the, the Garden of Eden, back in Genesis 3, way back at the beginning of the book. Satan comes to Eve, and she, he says to Eve, he uh, is it true that you're not allowed to touch any of the, eat from any of the trees of the garden? And he says, no, I can, we can eat from the trees of the garden. We just can't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or touch it lest we die. That there's one rule in the Garden of Eden, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, one rule. And Satan's response to her is devastating in its simplicity. He says, you will not surely die. I'll say it another way, disobedience is the way to life. And the gravity of the Christmas story, the gravity of the incarnation, do you know why Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden? It wasn't just because God is holy and he cannot be around sin. It's that there's another tree. There's another tree called the tree of life and in Genesis 3, here's what it says that now the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life, eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way. Not to God, to guard the way to the tree of life. And when it comes to the incarnation, what Jesus is about to do as he teaches his disciples and he gathers them around, he models that servant heartedness that we looked at in John 13. And he tells them that he is about to go die. What Jesus is doing in faithfulness and obedience to God's plan and God's purposes and God's word and design to save sinners is go into the wrath of God to open up the way to life. See, when we come to Christmas, we're reminded of the fact that Jesus gives us true spiritual light. But to do that, he's got to enter into the dark. He's got to go into judgment, go under the flaming sword to experience the very wrath of God, to open up the pathway for us to have eternal life. This is why Jesus can say, I know his commandment is eternal life because I'm about to purchase it for you. I'm about to go to the cross for you. I'm about to give you the light of life. And that's why we celebrate Christmas. Because we have believed and received and accepted that Jesus is who he says he is and that his teaching is trustworthy and that he can rise again and give us new life. Father, as we consider the Christmas season, as we consider even... This evening, as we drive around and we look at the lights that are out celebrating this season, season that give us a sense of nostalgia and purpose and joy and uh, Christmas carols sing in our hearts. And we think about our families and those that were near to us and dear to us. I pray for those in this room who may not know the light of Jesus Christ in their life. that as a result of seeing what Jesus hears. And what he says to us here that perhaps they acknowledge that there's a disordered love problem in their heart, that they love the darkness and they refuse to come into the light. We pray that through your spirit and your word, you would break that fear, that you would enter into the life of somebody here today, this morning, somebody who hears this message or sings the songs that we're about to sing. And that you might, this Christmas might be the one where there is true spiritual light in their heart. Father, we love you. We're so thankful that you turned the lights on for us, that you came and you incarnated and walked among us and experienced what we did to bring the light of God near to us. So for that, we give great thanks. We rejoice, we sing. And most of all, we worship in Jesus' name, amen.